But you can be seated. Again, my name is Pastor Ryan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you personally, it's so great to see you. It's so great to be with you here this morning, to gather with you online. We are going to continue in our study in the book of Amos. And so if you have uh, not been with us for a number of weeks or um, really um, almost a little over a month, we've been studying uh, the minor prophet of Amos. And so I want to invite you, as I grab my podium here, to grab your Bibles. If you don't have them handy at home, run through uh, around the the, the living room, go to the kitchen, go to the bedroom, run, grab your Bibles, and turn to Amos chapter 5. We'll be in the middle of chapter 5. As we pick back up where we ended last week in chapter 5, we made it through the first uh, half, in a sense, first half of this chapter, and we're going to pick back up in verse 18 this morning. But Amos has delivered these messages to Israel, message sent by God to deliver a message of um, judgment, of rebuke, of challenge to the people of God and to um, the Israelites. He's come from Judah, come from the southern kingdom up to Israel to, uh, to deliver these messages and as we talked about last week, and I'd encourage you, as I always do week after week, if you miss something, you can always go back to our podcast. Um, you can find that on any uh, of your podcast sources. Just look for City Church Melissa, um, or you can go to our website, citychurchmelissa.com, and you can find that and go back. But this is the third message, in a sense, of from Amos to Israel as he is bringing rebuke and bringing a challenge and cont- continuing to communicate God's word To the people of Israel and reminding them and and, and informing them in some senses that they had forgotten him, that they had made the pursuit of earthly things, of worldly things, their primary aim rather than focusing and looking only to the Lord. And unfortunately, they had allowed themselves to become self-worshippers. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping the things that they owned, their own possessions, and they had forgotten God, but all the while being tempted to believe that they were fine because they were doing lots of religious things. They were showing up to the temple. They were making sacrifices. They were bringing their tithes and even going above and beyond what was required of the law. And so they did all of the religious things. They did all of the things that it seemed that God would require of them, but their hearts were not his. And so he is delivered Amos, brought Amos up to them to just tell them of the coming judgment. And he's talked about and he shared throughout the first five chapters this judgment that would come for the nations to Judah and ultimately to Israel. They would not be spared as God looks upon the world, sees all of the injustice, sees all of the pain, sees all of the suffering and says, I will deal with it. And we too, we can know now looking backwards, we can see historically how God took that uh, or delivered that judgment through Assyrians and through other means. And as the people of God wandered around in their life, waiting for God to move and to bring deliverance and ultimately to bring the Messiah, we now look back also on the cross and we see Jesus's life and we know that sin was judged once and for all. And as we think about what Jesus delivered for us who look backwards on this moment and also look backwards on the cross, how much more should we be compelled not to allow ourselves to slip into self-worship and focusing on the things of this world and keep our eyes on Jesus? 
They were looking forward to this Messiah. They didn't know exactly what he looked like, although the prophets had given them lots of wisdom and shared many things about who the Messiah would be. We look back and we know the Messiah and we have his own words. And just like the Israelites, how often are we tempted to make religious activity, pursuit of our own dreams and wealth and prosperity and safety and all of these things our primary aim? In the midst of a global pandemic, are we most concerned about our physical health while our spiritual lives are rotting away? That is the challenge of Amos. He would say to the people of Israel, and I believe that God speaking to us is reminding us that we cannot be consumed by the things of this world. And so Amos, as he gets to the middle of chapter 5, we pick up in verse 18. By the way, Amos didn't have middle of chapter 5 as he's just continuing his message, but we're picking back up there in verse 18. We are really getting to the heart of Amos's message to Israel. We're getting to the emphasis that in a sense could be the theme of this entire book. Many of you will know verse 24, which says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. God saying, this is what he's after. This is the one verse in this book, this rather unknown book that hasn't been studied a lot that might stick out, might have been heard in the past. And Amos is delivering these challenges to the Israelites. If you're um, one of the children gathering with us today or online and you've downloaded your uh, kids worship guide, you'll want to listen for a few words that I might speak. These four words delivered to the Israelites from Amos. And these are four woes or in a sense four things that he's calling Israel to grieve and to be warned about. When God says woe to you, he is essentially saying Judgment is coming. Be warned. Be aware of what is coming. And so in verse 18, he picks up with the first of these things. The first woe. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos delivers this somewhat curious woe when he says to them, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now when I hear those words and when I think about the day of the Lord and perhaps you as well and I'm sure the Israelites themselves, they thought why would he be telling us to this warning? Why would he be saying woe to you who desire the day of the Lord? Isn't that what we're supposed to be after? Aren't we supposed to be looking forward to the day of the Lord? Isn't that the day that we will all be made well? How often, I know in my own life, especially in these recent seasons and challenging times, and this has happened throughout my life, but something terrible might happen, and I will cry out to the Lord, come Lord Jesus, let today be the day that you come back, because I just kind of want to be done with all of this mess. This is painful. I don't like what I see. But Amos says that woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, because the Israelites, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord Primarily because they saw the day of the Lord as the day when the Lord would redeem them, would praise Israel, and would condemn those worthless, filthy Gentiles. They saw this day of judgment where they would be lifted up and everyone else would be put down. What they had forgotten 
And what so often we forget, and even as I cry out, come Lord Jesus, come, is that that day when Jesus returns and that day of the Lord would be a day of judgment. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Zephaniah, if you go and read those prophets, they all speak of this coming time of purification for Israel. Israel would be judged. And all as Amos has delivered over and over and over again these multiple messages to them, he's been warning them, this day is a day of judgment for you. So I would not be so excited about this coming day of the Lord because your sins are going to be laid bare before God and there will be judgment and there will be purification. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord because... The day of the Lord will be a day of mourning. And as he continued at the end of verse 18, it's a day of darkness, not light. It's a day of demise. As Amos often does using this poetic language. It's a day when you will run from the lion and you will be met by a bear. I don't know about you. I told my story about being really close to a lion one time. Bears weren't even in the territory. So I can't imagine if I was running from that lion and met a bear. Those are two different geographical moments. And yet in the, the way that the Lord works, you're not going to flee is what Amos is saying. You might think you can get away from one when you're going to meet another. Or even worse for some of you, you go into your house and you lean up against the wall. You put your hand up to take a moment of rest. You think the day of the Lord is coming and you say, thank you, Lord Jesus, you are here. And you look up and your hand is bitten by a serpent. A snake comes and bites you. That would not be a good day. That is a day of judgment. And so as we think about this desire for the Lord to come, we must remember that the Lord's day when he returns will be a day of judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this about this day of the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Of course, when we think about the day of the Lord and we think about this coming day of judgment, we can't forget the gospel. But as we've said multiple times as we've worked our way through this book, one of the challenges or the problems that we have in Western Christianity is we have become so focused, so often thinking on just the grace of God that we forget why there's a need for grace. And the need for his mercy and the reason for those things is because there is sin in the world. And we've decided we don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to see any of the ugliness. And that's essentially an idea of self-worship because we know if we elevate and we start talking about sin and we start dealing with sin, our hearts are going to be condemned. We're going to have to deal with it in ourselves. And so let us remember that, yes, when we meet Jesus and that, that that day of the Lord appears for us. We will be met with grace and mercy, but that will not be before all of our sins are laid bare before God. And we are reminded why we needed that Savior. And so as we look in this life, as Paul implores, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord that leads to a heart that worships him, we persuade others. And how do we persuade others? We persuade others first 
by living lives that are set apart, that there is a holiness, that there's a mark upon them that says there's something different. That's how we persuade. And the reason that we persuade is because we want others who do not know this gospel yet, do not understand the grace of Christ, the coming mercy of the Lord, and all of those things that will come on the day of judgment. We want them to be say, I need to know this hope that you have. And then we can speak the words of the gospel to them. But before we get there, we have to acknowledge that there is sin in the world, our sin and other sin. And one of the things that I constantly remember is that if the day of the Lord were to come today, my neighbor who does not know Jesus is not going to find it a good day. And out of my love for him, my care for him, my desire that the world would know Christ Yes, I do in some senses on one side of the coin. I want the day of the Lord. I want Jesus to return and cleanse it all and redeem us. But we have to realize that that is a day of judgment. And so out of love for others, those that don't yet know Christ, we also should have a fear and a trembling about that day. We should recognize the judgment that will come on that day. Jesus modeled this for for us perfectly. Yes, he rose from the grave. But before there was redemption, before there was new life, he died on a cross. God himself laid down his life. Judgment. Judgment always precedes renewal and redemption. And that's the way that God works. And so we also must realize, as Amos warns the Israelites, don't so look forward to that day. Not while you are just reveling in your own sin and living as if it doesn't matter. They were unprepared for that day. We might ask ourselves, thinking about the way they lived their lives, why were they unprepared? What made these people, the Israelites, unprepared? Well, Amos continues in this quoting of the Lord in verse 21. He explains why they were unprepared. I hate, I hate, God says. I despise your feasts. Feasts, by the way, that he had commanded that they take, that they remember, that they honor. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Assemblies, by the way, that he commanded that they be a part of. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, offerings that he commanded that they should offer to him, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Can you imagine God saying, I don't even want to hear you sing? And it's not because your voice ain't good. I don't want to hear this false, fake worship, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says to his people, all of your religious exercises, all the things that you're doing, yes, I commanded you to do them, but your heart is not after me in any way. And all of this false worship, all of the things that you're doing, in a sense, are just heaping judgment upon you. Because you're doing them 
out of a religious activity, out of a fear, honestly, a fear of man, a fear of being accepted in the culture. The Israelites knew that they had to go to the temple. They had to celebrate the feast. They had to do the offerings. They would offer these things in public. They would make sure that everybody saw how much they gave to the, to the, to the temple. They would do all these things so that they could be recognized. And God says, that is not at all what I'm after. Those things were filthy to him. In verse 24, he describes that that's rooted their false worship. All of the things that they were doing that were not after his heart. The roots of that were that they had no concern for others. All they were concerned with were themselves. Righteousness in character and justice just in conduct. These are the things that God calls that his people, that those people who are sincerely worshiping the Lord and following the Lord and being obedient to his word, those things will follow in their actions, in the way they live their lives. There will be a righteousness deep within them, in their character, will be who they are. And then overflow into the conduct. These people, it seems, were just doing the activities where all their hearts were far from the Lord. Amos is saying to us, you can do all the religious things you want. You can have all of the activities you desire. But if you don't love your neighbor and you don't love God, you will not come before him in sincere worship. Loving others. That is who God has called his people to be. And just like their forefathers, they had forgotten that. Think about the Israelites again. We've talked about this many times. God had delivered them from Egypt. And all he'd asked for was faith, obedience, and love. Within minutes of making that request, they're worshiping the golden calf. They're creating something for themselves that they can see because they can't trust God's ways. They're not doing it to honor the Lord. While they're wandering in the desert, they continue to offer these sacrifices to false gods. Worshiping themselves. It's worthwhile to ask, is what we are doing this morning just a religious exercise? Do you sincerely love others and love the Lord? Is that evidenced by the way you put others before yourself? You consider others greater than yourself? You follow Christ in humility, humbling yourself? To even die, to lay down your life. Ultimately, that doesn't mean our physical lives all the time. It means that we might lay down our desires, the things that we wish would happen, the way we wish things would take place. Do we, are we willing to lay those things down? Or do we really worship, not God, just being accepted, doing the things that this culture, that the world would ask us to do? Do we worship the Lord or do we worship our version of God that we have created that makes us feel comfortable, that gives us some sense of peace? This is a warning that Amos delivers to God's people and I believe is a warning that is worthwhile for us to listen to. We look around our world and just like the Israelites, we see prosperity. I get that we're in a global pandemic and the economy is currently in some sense of a dip, but by and large, we are in economic prosperity. We're so wealthy that even a global pandemic doesn't destroy us. Just think about that for a moment. That's how prosperous our nation is. We can survive an economic shutdown 
global health concerns and still go about our days almost, if very little has changed, outside of a little face covering every now and then. That's how prosperous and wealthy and strong we are. And do we just do all that we can? Is our aim just to further that and just to keep that going? And do we receive that kind of looking around our world and think to ourselves, well, surely God is blessing us because look at all of our prosperity. Look at all of our wealth. Look at all of the things that God has delivered to us. Or perhaps, as he often does, God allows the enemy, the deceiver, to twist his ways and to come in and has just tempted us to believe, oh yeah, we're doing the right things. When we know in our heart of hearts, loving others and loving God is not where we begin. We begin thinking of ourselves first. This continues as Amos builds upon this challenge and these rebukes after saying, woe to you who desire this day of the Lord, recognizing that you're not prepared to meet him. Woe to the self-confident. In chapter 6, he begins, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Here, Amos returns to speaking both to Judah and to Israel. When he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, he is speaking to Judah. And to those that are, feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, Israel. We talked about how last week Israel will be drug off here in just a few, uh, you know, in ancient times, a few moments. But long ago after this is written, uh, the Israelites, uh, or God would bring the Assyrians to bring this judgment that he had promised to the Israelites. They'd be dragged off. And on the mountains of Samaria, where they once occupied this land, the Samaritan people would be formed. As some remnant, this small little group of Israelites was left and Gentiles moved in and that would form the Samaritan people. So here he is speaking to both nations and he's saying to them that they are at ease. Why are they at ease? Because they're self-confident. Again, thinking of those who pridefully Look upon all of the other nations, look upon all of the other people of the world and think, I've got it all figured out. I'm good. What what problem? This day of judgment, Amos, that you're speaking of, what could possibly come against me? Look at all that I do. Look at all of my activities. Look at all that God has blessed us with. Once again, wealth, prosperity, military strength. We're secure. They were foolish in their self-confidence. That self-confidence was rooted in pride and rooted in the reality that their hearts were not the Lord's. I love the way one commentator wrote describing the complacency and how, uh, how um, challenging and what a risk it is for us to sit with complacent hearts. Complacency is an insidious sin because it's based on lies, motivated by pride, and leads to trusting in something other than God. Like the people in the church of Laodicea, complacent people consider themselves rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. In reality, however, they, are, they have lost everything that's important in the spiritual life. When the Lord sees his people becoming complacent and self-satisfied... He sometimes sends trials to wake them up. What might a global pandemic be? 
What might some strife in your family, some challenge in your world, some pain and suffering that you're dealing with, a job loss or some challenge. Maybe perhaps those are things that God is using to wake us up and to realize we've grown complacent. We found ourselves thinking that we've got it all figured out because our lives are taken care of. We're good. What could go wrong? So often my young men, my sons, they tend to sometimes get a little confident Everything's going well for them. Grades are good. Job is good. They're doing well. And they, they, they like to pop off a little bit. And dad has to remind them, hey, remember whose you are. First the Lord's and then mine. Be careful. Self-confidence is not something that we should be proud about. Yes, we are redeemed people. And we have hope. And we don't have to walk around constantly in grief and strife. This is not a call to say that all of these things are bad. But if they become the anchor for our souls, if our confidence, again, is found within or in some other human institution or some other situation that we think we control, then we better be warned. We might be becoming complacent. Self-confident rather than confident in the Lord, confident in his provision, confident in his timing, confident in his ability to do whatever he intends to do. This is why, as I said last week, the sovereignty of God is such a peaceful thing because we can trust that he is in complete control. We're not confident in ourselves. We're confident in God and we're confident in what he has done and what he ultimately will do. Amos continues in chapter 6. Woe to you who put far away in verse 3. Oh, uh, excuse me. Oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the heart. Back to that false worship. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls, not wine in glasses, by the way, wine in bowls. And anoint themselves with the finest oils, but but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Woe to those who are self-indulgent. Self-confidence leads to self-indulgence. And the Israelites found themselves, as Amos approaches, lying on their beds, stretched out on their couches, eating the richest of foods, drinking the finest wines, all in abundance. And they are the ones who will be the first that would be led off into exile, he says. All the parties are going to come to a quick end. This should challenge our thought as we think about where... Is the space and the time in the midst of all of our prosperity and all of our self-indulgence. Where do we find time for the disciplines of the spiritual life? Where do we find time to pursue God when our lives are so consumed with the things of this world? It's simple. How could we have time to read our Bibles when we have so much else consuming our lives? So much taking up our time. Are we really chasing after the Lord? Or ultimately, are we just chasing after pleasure and thinking 
whatever we get from him is a blessing. And once we receive that, we'll just mix in a little religion just to kind of keep the party going. Just keep the flow happening. That's not what God is after. So this is the problem of a generation of moralistic teaching as opposed to gospel teaching. See, moralistic teaching, it leads to this mindset that's just sort of ingrained in us. And in many of us, I will just tell you that it was ingrained in me in my life. And there's a lot of work that I've had to try to do to reprogram my mindset. But it says, moralistic teaching says that if I input X, then God will deliver Y. There will be an output for me. If I put in enough A little effort for God. If I do a little bit of this, I do a little bit of that. If I do the right thing, if I'm just kind in general to people, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't do these things. If I do all of the moralistic things, the things that the world would say are right, that ultimately even our just, you know, sort of general law would say don't do those things. If I do all of those things well, don't get the speeding tickets, then God will bless That's what moralistic teaching leads to. The gospel teaches me, however, that there is no input. There's nothing I can do that will produce God's love for me. There's no amount of activity that I can churn up. There's no speed on the hamster wheel that I can get to that's going to produce and cause God to love me. Because God's love was produced for me before I ever had an ability to input, to create, to do God's love for me was written before time. Our minds can't get that. My mind explodes when I spend too much time dwelling on that idea. But before there was anything, God's love for me was real. And so this gospel mindset frees me from expecting to receive from God because of what I do. It allows me rather to receive everything from God, trusting that he loves me and is for my good. That verse that we cling to so closely, I know that God will work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's true. And that's a gospel mindset that says, nothing I do can change God's love for me. And because I know that is true, I don't have to worry about what inputs I put in to try and produce God's love for me. Rather, I can receive everything, even challenging things, even global pandemics, political unrest, racial tensions, all of the strife that we see in this world, I can trust God has not stepped down off his throne and he will deliver me into goodness. I know that I know that I know that. And so I'm set free from this idea of trying to do these right things. I'm only going to get there though if I let go a little bit of the things of this world. I let go of the self-indulgence that so often tempts us. I heard a message not too long ago of Job. And just consider all that Job experienced. God allowed Satan to tempt, to destroy, to go into Job's life and wreak havoc. And at the end of chapter 1, what is Job's response in the midst of all of those challenges? 
He falls down on his face and worships the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Why could he do that? Because he was not finding his hope in all of the things that God had given him. All of his possessions, all of his wealth, all of the abundance of his family. Again, a man that was as the most righteous on the earth at that time. And even still, because of that, ultimately, because of his devotion to the Lord, he could fall down on his face and he could worship God. We have become so self-indulgent that when we sense any bit of this earthly life might be being taken away from us. We might be losing a little bit of that wealth. We might be losing a little bit of that prosperity, a little bit of that freedom, a little bit of this challenge or that. We think to ourselves, this can't be right. There's no way that, no, no, I've got to do something. What do I need to change in order to receive again God's blessing? What input do I need to do to deliver God to do what I think he should do? That's moralistic teaching. That's our, our, which is woven in. And we should be warned. Amos is warning the people of Israel that the end is near. And we also can think and realize Jesus told us, by the way, that the end is near. He told us that 2,000 years ago, by the way. (laughs) The end has been near since he came. But you want to know why I believe and know that the end is near? It's not just because of the prophecies that say so. Again, Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. But history says so. The end is near because we have become lovers of pleasure more than we love God. 2 Timothy 3, 4 warns of this. And if we look throughout history in the way that God has operated, Daniel chapter 7, Belshazzar and his men were in the midst of a great feast when Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. Rome was enjoying what was often called bread and circuses, while the empire was in complete decay morally and politically. Jesus, we should hear his words clearly He wasn't messing around in Luke 21 when he says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. That day of the Lord will come and we should be warned to not find ourselves looking to ourselves, self-indulgent, thinking about all of the things that we can provide. Finally, the final woe that Amos gives at the end of chapter 6 is this woe to the impudent. That word's a challenging word. It's hard to say, impudent. And some of us don't know what that means. I had to even kind of think through what word might explain all that Israel is doing here. And in a sense, it's a, the word impudent is a stubbornness. It's an unwillingness to hear from God. Amos has delivered message after message after message. And here at the end of chapter 6, he's once again, he's saying, woe to you. Who are so stubborn that you will not hear from God. The Lord God, verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds and I will deliver up that city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house. And shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. There are prideful people. And this pride, as God says, is, is something that he hates. 
They would boast in their fortresses, in their strongholds. They showed no respect for God's blessing. And God ultimately will bring their end. I'm almost out of time. And so just quickly, he talks about in verse 6 through 9 that their end would come in the form of death, as I just read. Verse 11 through 13, for behold, the commands, the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Destruction would come for them. Verse 14, for behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath and the book and to the brook of Arabah. Disgrace and defeat. Ultimately, they would fall. They would be left with nothing. That was what was coming for the prideful, arrogant, prosperous, wealthy, very religious Israelites. How do they find themselves in this situation? We might ask, what could lead to God's people who've experienced, as Amos showed them, so many blessings to find themselves in this place where they're being rebuked, condemned, and ultimately promised judgment by God? They presumed to know God when they did not know the heart of God. They looked at all of the things around their life, all the things they could see, and they thought, that's how we know God. They were doing the religious things because they thought that God appreciated and wanted their performance when he was not after any of that. That was not what he wants. He wants their hearts and he wants our hearts. If you're a young parent, perhaps this day might come for you. Where one of your teenagers will know all the rules. They'll understand everything that you expect of them. And they'll think though that all these rules and all the things that you expect of them are just simply for your own joy. Because you take joy in ruling over their lives. There's nothing that brings you more excitement than just beating them down, oppressing them, keeping them from all the things that life might offer. And they'll think to themselves, if I just have the right grades, if I make the right team, if I don't say these words, if I don't go to these places, if I don't post these pictures, then everything will be right. And they will think that if they just do those things, that they've pleased you, that, they've, they, that they're doing what you would ask, and that your heart would be content with those activities. And then one night... A teenager will come into the kitchen and find you in tears. And those tears will be flowing because you read the text messages on their phone. You looked through their social media account. And these messages displayed how they felt about you. How they had learned to do just enough to appease you and keep you off their back. And they had shared this with all their friends. They had learned to do the right thing. And completely missed your heart and your love for them. Friends, God doesn't need you to do the right thing. He doesn't need you to speak for him. He doesn't need you to redeem this broken and fallen world. God said David was a man after his own heart. And David, as we know, the song we just sang... Written from his psalm, verse th- Psalm 34, 
was because David loved the Lord. He has a heart after the Lord. It wasn't that he did the right things. God wants your heart. He wants your complete and sincere devotion. He wants your love and your love for others. That's why in Acts chapter 17, I don't have time to go through it as I wish I could this morning. But Paul warns the people of Rome as he arrives in Athens. You're worshiping this unknown God. Let me tell you about the real God. The one who was raised from the dead. God doesn't need all your things, Romans, he's saying to them. He wants your worship. He wants your heart. Let us be a people who worship God, whose hearts are completely his. And let us fall down on our knees and repent of our pride, our self-indulgence, our arrogance, our belief that all the blessings of this world speak to us. Surely God is pleased. God is pleased with one thing. People who love him unconditionally, who praise him, who live for him. In him alone. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. So let's pray and ask for that help this morning. Holy Spirit of God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a word that challenges and rebukes. And I thank you that we can come to you because of the cross. And even as our sins might be bubbling up within our hearts, might being laid, be laid bare, we can, we can be grateful for that. Knowing, Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for those sins. And that if we would just confess those to you, that we will receive grace and mercy. So I pray now that we would be a people. Every single soul that can hear the sound of my voice would be a people who love you, Lord, who aren't caught up in the things of this world, but our eyes are fixed on you. We need your help, Holy Spirit, for that to be true. So I pray that you would guide us. Lead us into repentance, into confession. Restore us. Empty our lives of the things that consume us so that you alone can hold your rightful place, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your beautiful and precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's such a joy, again, to be able to worship with you. Um, I do want to just uh, very quickly make you aware of two things, two announcements uh, before we dismiss. The first is on August 16th, we are going to have our leadership summit. And what that is, is that it is not a, a, a day where you are uh, saying that you're a leader, but it is where our leaders will gather you together, those ministry leaders in various areas of our churches, so that you might have an opportunity to learn how you can engage with us, whether that's in kids ministry or student ministry or our care team, our hospitality team, some of the areas where we minister to others, we want to invite you to be a part of that. And so the way that we invite you that you can engage with us is through being a part of that day. And so it's a full day where we'll gather for worship and then after worship, we'll have various meetings from our teams. And so you can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page and you can see the information about that. But if you would just today, mark your calendar, circle August 16th and just say Lord's Day and do that from eight to eight, you know, just give us 
just this give the whole day. It won't really be that long, but just mark that day apart so that you can be, you can join us for the leadership summit. Second thing is you might have noticed if you're new with us or if you've never gathered in person with us, you might think, well, after they turn the cameras on, that's when they pass the plate. That's not something that we do here. We don't pass the plate here at City Church. And the reason we don't is not because we don't think that financial giving or serving in that way is, is something that we're called to do, but we just have always made it clear. We want the gospel to be heard clearly without any interference. And ultimately, the people of God, Christians, are the ones who are called by God to give gifts sacrificially to the church. And so we've just always, we've never done that. However, um, it's definitely something that as Christians, we are called in obedience to give. And so I want to invite you, if you've maybe this summer and because of Corona and all the various things, sort of just uh, letting that habit sort of fall away, um, you can go to our website, uh, you can give online, you can mail checks. And again, if you're joining us for the first time, I don't do this every week. I'm doing it because literally the first time I've said it in three months. Uh, but we would invite you to to give. Uh, we are gathering in a space here at the Midas Hill uh, Vinery or Winery and Event Center. I said Vinery, Winery and Event Center. And in the Lord's kindness, we are in the midst of uh, raising funds to purchase this building. We will gather here permanently uh, very soon, uh, we hope. And so uh, if you'd like to help be a part of that, that's what we, one of the things we'd invite you to give to or just the continual ministry of our church. So um, thank you so much for hearing that and uh, just invite you to do that. Love you so much. Thank you for being with us. And we look forward to seeing you again in worship, either here in person or online uh, next Sunday. Y'all have a great day. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.